as we uh, continue our series reform this morning our scripture comes out of Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 it says this for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. Thanks, Steve. Um, if you guys would look around at each other, you'll notice that um, this is what you all look like with one extra hour of sleep. <laughs> it's nice to be able to preach on those particular Sundays, which in my mind means you're going to laugh at all my jokes, but um, as my wife would contend, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but we are in this series uh, called Reform. This past week was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so we are digging back into the past to see if there's something that we can learn. And Pastor Steve was with us last week, and the title of his message was Sola Scriptura. We're going through the five solas that came from specifically the Protestant Reformation, not just Martin Luther, but other reformers. And some of you that you were here last week, and if you weren't here last week, you might need to go on YouTube or on our Facebook page to see um, the video feed. Uh, last week, we were graced by Pastor Steve um, who was doing a little dance up here on stage. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he was talking about uh, a song from the group DC Talk, which we'll forgive him for. But he, and then I could see there was a sense where he was like, there was something within him that wanted to move and dance. And I thought, oh, Pastor Steve, he's got some moves in him, I think. So maybe some other time we'll have to have him up here and dance uh, more fully for us. But I will not be dancing. I will not be dancing for you uh, today. So we're in this series called uh, reform. And sometimes it's difficult to reach back into something that ha happened so long ago because there's this thing called historical distance. Like we really don't know what it's like to be those people dealing with those issues and speaking those languages and all the other aspects that have to do with things that happen in history. Like for example, in with the Re Reformation, you know, we don't know what it's like to uh, live in a feudal system. We don't know what it's like to um, live under a monarchy with a king or a queen. We don't know what it's like in the Middle Ages. We don't know what it's like uh, if you were living under a tyrannical leader. I know that some of you are really upset about politics these days, but trust me, um, if you knew your history and the things that you just, we should be grateful, okay? And we don't know exactly that sort of life, but there's certain things that can remind us, and it's fun to reach back and to com compare and contrast, because as, as much as these people and these issues were different from us, we find so many different similarities. It could speak into our hearts and our lives and how we view God and how we view the faith uh, as well. Now, there's other reminders as well. So um, I was reminded, actually, of all of these, the, the, the dark ages, middle ages, the, the fuel system, and all of that, um, when I was dropping my kid off uh, to his elementary school. One thing I learned, my, my son Asher is starting kindergarten, or he, he's in kindergarten, so we're in this new season, and I'm learning, you know, how things go. One of the things I've learned is that there's just as many rules for the parents as there are for the children, and I think probably for, for good reason. But the drop-off is like 
um, landing the chopper into the LZ and, you know, dropping the Marines off. In fact, there are administrators and teachers that have air traffic control lights guiding us in. And his school is on a really busy street, and the driveway to the school is not very big, and so it sometimes would back up traffic. And, of course, there's a lot of, like, impatient parents that are on their way to get somewhere, and so everything has to be very controlled, very very organized. And so when you come and you, you pull into the, the driveway of the school and you pull up to the curb that is to the right, uh, that's where you're, you're supposed to stop in a specific place and, and drop off your child. Uh, one of the things I didn't know, though, is that our, well, our son... His seat was on the driver's side, on the, on the left side, and so he would just get out on the other side and just walk around. Well, that sort of created a little bit of an issue with one of the administrators who came up to me to, you know, um, one of those, the people that they give one of those smiles, but you know that there's something. <laughs> so I just want to let you know, and... They asked if he could be on the other side of the car. So I switched the seats over the next day, a few days later maybe, and put his seat on the other side. I'm, I'm growing as a parent. And uh, one of the things I forgot when, when I put him on that side, one of the things I forgot, and, and parents, you know this, that um, part of the growing process as a child is that you get to destroy all of your parents' things. And so Asher, as a, as a younger boy, had broken the handle of that particular door, and he couldn't get out on that side. So I think, oh, gosh, what am I going to do? So then I realized I had to pull up on the curb, get out of my seat, go around, and let him out. Well, that brought the administrator back with their smile. <laughs> Just so you know, for your protection, right? It's for your protection, you know, we'd ask that you not get out of your your vehicle. So I thought to myself, what in the world am I going to do? I, I was running out of options. Now they presented an option for me to go park and then walk him in. I wasn't going to do that. I'm an impatient parent. I got to get somewhere. I'm, I'm important, right? So I was running out of options. Now this is sort of a silly example, but I think it kind of symbolizes something that a lot of you go through, maybe daily, but definitely during the week as we we, we run into these scenarios where there's just no option. I mean, we feel like we're just kind of helpless. It is outside of our control, and there's just nothing that we can do, and we're just beside ourselves. Now, some of those things are kind of small and kind of funny, like you know, dropping your kid off. Some of them get kind of serious for us, don't they? Like you've been working under this boss that just doesn't seem to like you, just seems to have it out for you, and you just don't know how to navigate it. Or some of you are in this like relationship with someone, and you just don't know what to say, and you know, you're just out of options. Or, or maybe you've been presented with an ethical dilemma where people are expecting you to do something that you don't believe in, and you're trying to figure out, well, what do, what do I do in this circumstance? And then there's like the really big things. I mean, have you thought about the people that lost their homes from the hurricanes recently? Completely out of options. What, what are they going to do? Or the people that have, are serving, uh, serving uh, for their faith in, in other countries where it's illegal or uh, they sometimes reach situations where they are just out of options, or, or people that are stuck in the never-ending cycle of poverty where every day they're just trying to figure out those basic necessities that we take for granted, and they just cannot get a leg up 
in life. And then there's people that, you know, we talked about during our faith promise, people that are literally caught in actual slavery and human trafficking, and there is no way out. And so there's this situation, there's this sort of impulse within us to say, this is not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be, which speaks to us, I think, to say that there is something within us. There's an outcry for us that longs for freedom. And that the more we are helpless, the more compromising a situation would be, the more we feel out of control, no matter what level of faith you are, our perspective gets broader and and wider. So, for example, if we run into a problem, we begin to feel helpless, we can no longer think about the individuals that are involved. We suddenly think about the system or the man. The man's got me down. It becomes more abstract and wide in general. And sometimes, even people of all different levels of faith then turn to God. Their focus becomes fixated on God. And I think we've all done that. Now, some of you who are really, just really heroes of the faith, like you think about God in all kinds of of, of situations. You're just like, you know, praise Jesus, I found the spice aisle in the grocery store. And some, you know, but some of us don't naturally do that. We think, well, we gotta, you know, we gotta figure out our own solutions. We gotta work at it. But then it gets above us and bigger than ourselves and suddenly we start to look god are you going to fix this like what what's your solution for this so the key figure in our series of reform is martin luther and the key event of the protestant reformation was luther nailing the the 95 theses on the door of the church in wittenberg germany and sometimes when we learn about these movements and, and all of that, we are key in on some of the figures and some of the major events. But sometimes we don't really get into the, the nitty-gritty of what caused that. So what I'd like to do and, and recognize that there's all kinds of different reformers, and Pastor Steve talked about many of those last week. I'm going to key in specifically on Martin Luther because I think there's something particularly going on with him and his spirit and his wrestling that, that led to him finally taking that step of nailing those 95 theses because Martin Luther was trapped. He felt like there was no way out. And it wasn't because he was like locked up in the monastery that he was serving in as a monk. It was a a, a theological or a doctrinal issue. And as much as we talk about the the Protestant Reformation and other Reformations, it is a lot of like how people are behaving and things that they're doing. But This, the Protestant Reformation, in many ways, is a reformation of belief, a reformation of doctrine. That what Martin Luther had been taught about God and what he believed about God caused a great deal of internal turmoil, and he wrestled with it. He came to a place where he was stuck, and and, and scholars, well, one of the terms for the, the wrestling, the struggle that he had, is something that you probably have heard before, is, is salvation by works. Salvation by works. And salvation by works is simply just this idea that I'm going to earn God's favor, I'm going to earn my place in, in God's sight by doing good things, 
or, or being a good person. And maybe you've heard this, maybe you've said this before, where you say, I am a good person. You're making that declaration. And then some of us in the church, you know, we, we hear this phrase, salvation by works, and we go, oh, salvation by works. You know, we kind of learn that it's a derogatory term, but we forget sometimes about how common it is. And sometimes it goes a little undetected when we are showing signs of it. Salvation by works is so, such a common experience that um, in Martin Luther's day, it was a, a pervasive thought but it wasn't anything new. It was actually replicating the same kinds of problems that Jesus was running to, into in his day. Because in ancient Judaism, the first century, there was a, a large belief that having that right standing before God consisted of uh, something called the works of the law. That there were these specific uh, manifestations of faith living into the law. And as long as you did those things, key in on the word did, as long as you did those things, then you were in right standing before God. And some of the examples of these were, you know, circumcision, observing the Sabbath, uh, dietary restrictions, all of these different things. And it consisted not only of things that you would do, but a lot of what you would abstain from. So the things that you would do and the things that you would not do. And that was the key focus of being in that right standing through the eyes of God. And this is so common even today. You know, most of the world's religions focus and key in on this same sort of belief and the same mentality. That if you were to do the right things and abstain from the wrong things, then you will be in right standing before God. You'll be good. You'll be a good person. Now, from the Christian witness, there's a few problems with that. I think there's a few characteristics that come about that might be damaging for us. And the first is that we begin to form a bargaining relationship with God. That God becomes our boss. That our aim in life is to please God by the good things that we are doing. The problem is, where is that line? Where is that that, that line that we cross from suddenly being not in good standing to being in good standing based on the things that we do. And we find out that we're bargaining with an abstract uh, definition of what it means to be a good person. Do you notice that when people declare that they are a good person, they make that, that self-justification? It's basically all up to their own definition of themselves, right? Oh, I'm a good person. Well, what does that mean? Well, I do all, they, they define it for themselves. Out in the lobby in the, the, um, the guest services desk, we offer a book by Andy Stanley. It's called, How Good is Good Enough? And I think that question really cuts to the heart of this framework of belief, this, this belief system. How good is good enough? Where is that line where suddenly we hop over into that place? And the truth is, we don't know where that line is. It's never been declared for us. And so we continue to work and continue to work. It's never good enough. And we find ourselves just working constantly, not knowing where we stand before God. The second characteristic that kind of springs up through this is that if we're not self-justifying, we often are self-condemning. That even people who say, I believe in Jesus, I believe my sins are forgiven, I believe that, you know, I believe in God that is full of grace and mercy, but I just can't trust that he actually has forgiven that one thing 
that I still carry a heap of shame about. They cannot trust that their sins are actually forgiven. They live a life full of condemnation. And so those are the two damaging characteristics that come about with that, that framework of belief. And Luther really struggled with this. In fact, when his friend died, he became just keenly aware of his mortality. And he became very afraid of his standing before God because he just didn't know where he stood before God. And so he found himself constantly in confession because the belief of that day was that, if, that God would only forgive the sins that you would confess outwardly to someone else. And so he found himself in the office of the superior monk uh, confessing all the time his sins. He became obsessed with confession. And it's even recorded that he would end his time of confession. He would go off and he would recall something. So he'd run right back to the office again and say, oh, I forgot one thing. So this superior monk he got really annoyed with Martin Luther. This is what he, he says. It's kind of funny. He said, look here, Brother Martin. If you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father. <laughs> Commit adultery. Stop coming in here with such flummery, flummery, and fake sins. <laughs> I love that. It was a never-ending cycle that this belief system created for him. And what he began to realize is that he was playing a game he was never, ever going to win. And so the result, and this is why beliefs and doctrines are really important, the result was that he began to hate God for it. He realized that the Christian life was more full of weight and heaviness and burden than freedom and of liberty, and he hated God for it. He says this, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinner and secretly, if not blasphemously, certain murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, if, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners are eternally lost through their original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, which is the, the, the works of the law, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and his wrath. See, Martin Luther came to realize that the framework and the paradigm of his belief system told him that God's greatness, God's power, God's majesty was specifically there, was specifically utilized to condemn and to remind people of how terrible, wretched people they were. And he didn't like that God. Sometimes I wonder if this same mentality sort of creeps up within us. That we find maybe that if God would just be more proud of us if we, if we did these things or removed ourselves from these things or, or, or that God could never possibly forgive this if, um, because I have, have done this. I wonder how much that creeps up into our own conscious and into our own hearts sometimes. Author Greg Boyd talks about this uh, and labels it the try harder solution. 
It's the idea that if you want to have more of God in your life, that if you want to experience God as a tangible God, you want to have a, a living, breathing, tangible relationship with God, if you want to figure out God's purpose for your life, then you just need to do more. And it becomes a list of oughts and ought nots. That you ought to do this more. That you ought to read your Bible more. You ought to pray more. You ought to attend church more. You ought to do this and this and this. And all of it hinges on the idea that doing more helps you to be in that right place before God. I was that person. I was that person. There was a point in my life when the faith was more about what I was doing than what Jesus did for me. And I also ran into that never-ending cycle of trying to please God by doing this and doing that, and I was fixated on what was wrong and what was right, and I realized that the more I did it, the more I realized how much I was in the wrong, and so I began to deflect and look at everybody else's wrongs because <laughs> it seemed a little bit easier than to focus on myself. I can tell you without, with, with certainty that I was the worst Christian you would ever want to meet. <laughs> I was that man. And I learned what Martin Luther learned is that there's a big difference. There's a connection, but there's a, still a difference between what we do and who we are. And this conversion, this switch for Martin Luther came in what's called the tower experience, the tower experience. And he recalls later that he was um, sitting in the tower of the monastery and he began to reflect on the scripture that was read for you. First, uh, Romans 1, uh, verses 16 to 18. And specifically in verse 17 is what I want to key in on because that was the verse that was really tripping him up. He would read for in the gospel and, and then he's, he would read the righteousness of God and he couldn't get past that phrase, the righteousness of God. And as I read for you in, in the previous quote, he said, I hated the righteousness of God because all that was done in his day was a way to condemn not only himself, but to condemn uh, others. And so he fixated on the righteousness of God. This word righteous is a, a legal term. It can also be translated as justice, and the Bible that you have might have different ways of, of saying uh, the righteousness, but it was a declaration of, of position. It was a standing argument. It was this sort of state of, of vindication to say that you are in the right. And so when it's talking about God, and God being God, God stands in the right. And that the God's, God's rightness or God's justice or God's goodness is revealed. It is shown. It is displayed. How is it displayed? A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. God's righteousness, not ours, but God's righteousness that is revealed, displayed, shown by faith from first to last. And your Bible might say something different because it's trying to make sense of these two Greek prepositions that really are talking about a state of development. Some might say through faith, for faith, or from faith to faith. And the idea is that it becomes from faith into something greater that is also faith. And then, 
as a way to example this, just as it is written, and this is a quote from Habakkuk, the righteous will live. How will they live? The righteous, the the person in right standing, how will they live? They will live not by works, but by faith. And so suddenly Luther's eyes became opened and it was like this con- conversion moment for him that suddenly he began to understand who God is and who he is as God's child in a, holy, in a whole different way. He says, uh, there um, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And so from this experience and from this little conversion, we have one of our solas, one of the themes that comes from the Reformation, which is sola fide, uh, by faith alone, or, or faith alone. And the cool thing about faith alone is that um, the results of which are moving from a state of being trapped from a state of, of having no options, uh, uh, from a state of, of not being able to go anywhere to a state of freedom and to a state of liberty. In fact, uh, Luther had said that there is no freer person than a Christian. That while we are stuck in this mode of trying to please God by our own efforts to figure life out by our own efforts to use our own ingenuity and our own minds to, to, to conquer life and to remove ourselves from, from weakness and sin and brokenness all by ourselves instead of leaving it to ourselves to figure all of that out that through faith then we embrace the freedom of not having to to tackle those issues. That those, all that, that sin and that brokenness and that shame, that's what God takes care of. And we place our faith in that. And so, um, quickly, what does it mean to have faith then? What does it mean to, to be a person of faith? And we throw that word around a lot, right? We talk about uh, sort of a category of beliefs. So there's like the Hindu faith or the Jewish faith. And so we use the word faith in that way. Sometimes we say to one another, I have faith in you. Like we're trying to say that we trust you or that we're encouraging you in some way that, that you, you know, you can do it. Well, the, the Greek word that was used in this scripture that was read for you um, which is the primary word in the New Testament for faith is the word pistis. And pistis is, um, means, a, a, has a, several different layers to it, which is often the case our English language doesn't do it justice. But this word pistis specifically is really neat because it does have to do with our belief. It has to do with our trust. Uh, it has to do with assurance that we have faith in God. We have faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the cool thing. It also means, it also not Alternatively, but it also means faithfulness. That we have faith in God, but we also have faithfulness. And if you think for a second what that would mean, that we remain faithful to the one in whom we have faith. You see that these are relationship words. When we talk about faithfulness, we talk usually about spouses, right? 
one spouse to the other, remaining faithful to one another in a committed relationship, being faithful maybe in a work relationship. I'm being faithful to my boss or to, um, I'm being faithful. We, that's why we talk about faith promise, which is our giving for um, missions and, and outreach because it is something that we are committing ourselves to. It is a relation, a term of relationship. And so in this, we, we reach um, a tension between two seemingly alternative uh, images of God. And this is presented all throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That we, the, the biblical witness for God is two things that seems contradictory to us in many ways, but in God's perfection holds it in beautiful and harmonious tension. So the one is that God is a judge. That your actions matter. God cares about your behavior or your inaction. That's what sin is. It's the things that we do that contradicts or opposes the purposes of God. So we have a reckoning for that. We are held accountable for that by God. And so God is a judge. And when we go into, uh, at the end of life on this earth, we reckon for those things. But God is also a father with whom we have a relationship. And that God, the father God, the one that Jesus called Abba, which is like daddy, is the one that lavishes us with grace and mercy and love and tenderness and care. And we live within those tensions. What has happened in a recurrence and recycling of history, not only in the, old, uh, the first century Jews, even before that, but in Martin Luther's time, is that people primarily saw God as the judge. And we forgot about the Father. We removed ourselves from that relationship. And that while we're hold accountable, held accountable for the things that we do, what is most important to God, what really grieves God's heart is not so much of what we do, but the distance that is created, the severing of that relationship. And that the whole point of the gospel, the good news, it is good news, the good news of the gospel is that we now have a reconciled relationship with him. This is why it says that it is the power of God, the power of God to be used for salvation for all. That God uses his eternal, majestic, awesome power not against us, but for salvation. That is what God is driving towards. And that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we stand not in our own righteousness, but we stand in the righteousness of the Father that has been gifted to us. You see the difference there? One author said it this way. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. I wonder if there's some of us that have been worried about our standing before God because we're so primarily fixated on what we do 
rather than living into who we have been created to be in Jesus Christ. There's a story that Jesus told about um, a man who was wealthy and his brat son who basically said, I wish you were dead, so I'd like my inheritance early. And so the father agreed to give him his inheritance early, and he took it, and he moved away, and he lived for himself. He spent it all on himself, and suddenly he realized that all the money was gone. And he was out of options. He was trapped. He was stuck. And so he decided out of desperation to hire himself out as a slave to a farmer and he was tending to the pigs and it got so bad that he looked upon the pigs and he said, I wish I was eating what the pigs were eating. And then he thought of one option, his only option out. He said, you know, my dad was a pretty good guy and even his slaves live better than than I'm living now. So I'm going to return to my father but not as a son. I'm going to return as a slave because at least I'll have a better life than I have right now. That was his only option. And so he set out to return to the father with the full intention of bringing himself over to him as a slave. In fact, the scripture says that as he was walking, the father sees him while he's still far off. And the father comes to greet him. And the son has this whole rehearsed message in his mind. And he begins to tell him, well, I'm ready to to bring myself over as a slave. And the father doesn't even pay attention to what he's saying, doesn't even answer him. Instead, the father turns to his own slaves and servants. You think about that image. He turns to his own slaves and servants and he says, go get the robe, go get the rings and kill the fatted calf because my son, he calls it my son, my son has returned to me. He was once lost, but now he is found. That is God's heart's desire and our only options are kind of like that (laughs) prodigal son I guess as good as it's going to get for me is just living like a slave trying harder trying harder trying to please God and we go to him and he sees us while we're still far off and declares you his son his daughter his child come to me My prayer for us is that we would um, be able to just identify those moments where we have left the Father, and sometimes under religious pretenses, that we focus so much on God the Judge that we have lost God the Father. We find ourselves continuing to work, 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 and not feel the freedom and the liberty that comes in knowing Jesus Christ. I wonder if that's that any of us today. Here's the thing. I know that I'm talking to some people that are kind of figuring this whole Jesus thing out. And I know I'm talking to those of you that have been in the church a long time. I know I'm talking to some of you that have been Christians a long time. And I know that because, listen, I preach to myself first. You guys don't understand this. And I find myself living under that weight. But in Christ, through faith, We experience freedom. We experience liberty. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and 
we're going to sing a couple more lines. And so when you sing this, my prayer is that you would really capture the release of our brokenness, our sin, and our shame, and then the freedom and the liberty that comes directly as a result. Let's sing together. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious love. be well with your soul as you go out in faith and faithfulness. You would stay close to the Father who, while we are still far off, comes out to meet us and claim us as his own. When you go, make each step a step of faith and of faithfulness. Go in the grace and the peace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen.